it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them to live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's what we call it, At Your Best. So I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. On this episode, we start off honoring our veterans in light of Remembrance Day and why it's important to never forget the sacrifices made for our way of life. We'll also dive into why the Canadian Senate is pushing for psychedelics to be used to help treat PTSD in our veterans. On top of that, we look into a new study that shows how little Canadians really want to work for a living, how board games can keep you sane this winter, how a food bank thinks it's allowed to turn away certain types of people, and why we all need to do ensure the next generation has an amazing future. The only way to find out is to sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help you be at your best. When Canadians have fought during times of war and conflict, they've done so in defense of the values we all hold dear. Values like freedom, democracy, and the rule of law. Members of our armed forces have stood up for these values. They have endured the horrors of war to defend them. They have borne scars, and too many have given their lives. We owe it to them to stay true to our values and to never forget the sacrifices they've made to protect us all. Well, there you go, and welcome to the show. Thanks for being here with me uh, on Veterans Day, on Remembrance Day, actually, is the day of... Uh, today that we're celebrating across the country and I think in the United States as well. Um, interesting time, though. It's one thing to wear a poppy and to kind of, you know, recognize the the, the short, brief time that we stay silent for uh, those that have fallen uh, during many the many wars that uh, Canada seems to have been involved in and I guess, unfortunately, more to come. But from the perspective, you've heard, you've heard a lot about veterans and, and, you know, their perspective on people paying attention and, and standing up and actually recognizing them. I want you to call me right now. You're able to do that. 877-399-9898 or give us a text, send us a text. Do you feel we're doing the right thing by our veterans? Do you really think we're doing enough to recognize who they are? <clears throat> because I've worked with lots of them, hundreds of them in my career uh, from various wars and, and various times. Uh, and I can tell you that the thing that makes it very difficult for most veterans are the memories, the trauma, the traumatic stress that comes with living through that day and those memories and the dreams and the nightmares that make it difficult to get through those types of of experiences and and for many for many veterans from from many of the wars that we fought for many of them there's there's guilt around surviving there's a survival's guilt survivor's guilt excuse me which is like a real thing you know people that have been involved in in school shootings and and all kinds of other forms of horrible violence and and, and disaster human disaster and, and are able to walk away or fortunate enough lucky enough or just you know able to be uh, in the right place at the right time to get away or to somehow get out of harm's way. A lot of those people feel real bad about the fact that they survived and some of their friends and others did not. So I think we need to see that as a day of celebration for sure and a day of remembrance, but we also need to remember the veterans themselves, the survivor, the survivors of these wars and be more respectful. I think the pain that the day can bring up for many of them. 
And needless to say, with all the war that we see on TV today and across the news media and across uh, the chorus network and radio networks across the world and in print across the world, you know, it's not hard to read and see pictures and hear stories that conjure up many, many memories from people that have fought in the wars of past. You know, one guy, his name is Jackson. He flew 32 combat missions back in the United Kingdom. He's going to be 103 in January. And the memories that he has of the wars are not necessarily, excuse me, not necessarily positive. You know, he lost a lot of friends. He feels great, grateful that he and his brother and his father, who all fought in different wars at different times, were able to come back and, and survive and get back here in one piece. But for many veterans, that's not the case. For many of their families, that's not the case. So while we're walking around wearing the poppy and recognizing the, the, the unbelievable contributions and sacrifices that these men and women made in order for us to live the life that we live in this country, in order to have the freedoms that we have in Canada, in order to be able to agree and disagree on political matters, in order to hold protests. You know, that's, that's not a thing that always existed. Whether you believe in the, in, in the content or, the, or, the, or the, the driving theme behind the protest, the fact that in our country we're able to is, is really, a, I think, a big deal. Interesting, though, I want to get on with, you know, a little more discussion. I think we really need to recognize, though, that there's a lot of traumatic stress that goes through the, the minds of the families and, and the survivors of, of these many wars. And that when we, we, you know, it seems to, I think we need to tie it a little more together with the, the mental health recognition and, you know, and, and provide more support, not just for veterans. Because as you get older, I can tell you for in real life that as you get older, your memories become sometimes more haunting, often more vivid uh, in certain cases, especially the ones that are traumatic. Uh, but uh, I want to do a, just pivot a little bit here. Uh, what I found what I found interesting is that the um, there's a school the the there's a, several museums across uh, Canada in in where there's you know Second World War. Uh, stuff and uh, all kinds of historic stuff. Um, this fellow named Jackie Jansen Van Dorn, he is the executive director of Military Museums Foundation. So he says that they've come up with an interesting way to teach to teach um, about this stuff in the school system. And interestingly enough, they came up with a with a, a, a kind of a, a a math here. There's two things that they're teaching in school right now through the educators. Uh, there was one program called uh, called Explosive Threats relating to, re to mining and demining and peacekeeping. And that's part of a, a Calgary classroom right now. Another one that's called Explosive Math, where students learn to do mathematical equations to plot the shot fall of an artillery shell. So tying some of the kind of the old, old school war uh, stories and scenarios to current education is one way that we want to make sure our children never forget. And that's really the, the whole you know, essence of, of, of Veterans Day and, and Memorial Day and Remembrance Day. These are days that we want to make sure the next generation of people don't forget you know, the, about these sacrifices and about how we got the freedoms and the life that we have. Because, you know, it's 2023. There's a lot of countries out there that don't enjoy those types of benefits. So it's amazing for them to have the recognition and the honor. But I think many veterans would prefer not to have the memories 
right? And I think what's really interesting is when you look at the perspective of survivors, right? People that have to relive their trauma. It's, it's most people just don't get it. They don't understand it. And it's hard to share it. So let's be mindful that uh, while veterans get up and share their stories, like Holocaust survivors do as well, and other forms of, of uh, veterans and survivors of different traumatic events, when these people get up and share their stories and talk about how their world has changed, it's a big deal. And I think part of the recognition needs to be that it's a big deal when someone who has those types of thoughts is able to get up in a room and talk about the impact it's had on them and how it feels today. But I know for sure, talking to a lot of veterans, they all want to make sure that Remembrance Day doesn't go away and that children always remember where this comes from, where it came from. You know, it's if you tell the story, they'll tell their kids stories. You know, there's lots of really cool movies you can watch with your kids, the old, some of the remakes of the old war movies that, you know, have some pretty cool stars in it that, you know, your kids can relate to. So uh, I think it's a, a family event. I think it's a question of talking and sharing. Uh, but uh, certainly my hat goes off to all those veterans out there who not just survived the war, but survived the war of dealing with the trauma for the rest of their lives coming forward. As soon as we come back from break, interesting stuff. A new survey found that most Canadians would be much happier in their lives if they didn't do this one thing. So pay attention. And when we come back from break, we're going to figure out what that one thing is and what you need to do to be at peace in your life. I don't know. Sometimes it's not such an easy decision. Well, we're going to figure out. Here's what the survey says. People want to give something up. And I don't think it's chocolate or caffeine. I want you to know that I have a guest in my studio tonight. His name is Siggy Bud. And Siggy Bud, actually, his real name is Sigmund Freud Bud. Sigmund Freud Bud is 7.8 pounds of the most delicious little puppy you've ever seen. He's not a puppy. He's seven years old. My little puppy. And uh, my wife, his mother, are away, is away. And um, so he's in studio with me because he doesn't like to sit alone. But he might want to share. So if you hear some dogs barking, it's not because I'm out in the neighborhood in the back alley. It's because in my studio, I got a little guy who thinks he's a German shepherd. So I gave you a little tease there in terms of uh, how you feel about uh, what do you think somebody would want to give up? Like if, if you had a choice of giving something up, what would it be? Right? Well, let me tell you something. I don't know if you know it, but most people don't want to work. They just don't want to work. They don't want to go to work. I know, I know. you know, my, my, my man, Leo, he's in the studio. He's like all over it. But, you know, he and I talk about things we'd like to do with we weren't actually here right now, you know, like take a trip somewhere, go for a fine dinner. Like, you know, and you talk to a lot of people across Canada these days. As a matter of fact, there was a survey of 2,500 of them from September 30th through to October 22nd this year part of the Angus Reed group, you know, those people that do really interesting surveys and studies and polls and stuff. And they talk about the percentage, 59.4% of people asked said they'd rather not work. So I don't know. What do you think? 877-399-9898. Would you want to work if you didn't have to? Would you work if you didn't have to? And my man here, my, my, my man, uh, Glenn, who is, uh, Bergonier, he is the, he is the, uh, my content producer, you know, he's always trying to give me a little, little kind of 
interesting thoughts about how I might want to approach a particular story. And he says here, you know, you got to look at it from the perspective of every Canadian. Take the stance that we've always we've always had to work. But what if we didn't have to? He says, Yona, I know you're at work right now on a Saturday night because you love it and it's fun. But would you if you didn't have to? And the answer is absolutely. So what does have to mean, I think, is the question. What does have to mean? So does someone have to work to pay the bills? That's it. Absolutely. And I think at that stage, you know, we don't all, we don't have choices. I mean, we either pay our bills and survive and maybe thrive if we're lucky in, in this economy, more difficult perhaps than other times in our life. But, you know, like, what would you do otherwise? If you suddenly won the lottery, you hear about these folks that win the lottery and the 30 million, 40 million in the States, you know, a billion, a billion in a little bit, or just like crazy amounts of life altering, life changing money. Do they get up the next day and go to work? I mean, I got hundreds of patients and clients. I just can't leave. It's not like I can just hang a shingle on my door, a sign that says, okay, gone fishing, be back in 2025. Or won the lottery, see you later, suckers. No, come on. You can't do that. It doesn't work. So why why is it that Canadians in particular, I think people probably across North America, maybe the world, why they prefer maybe not to come to work if they had a choice? And I think it has everything to do with, and I don't think, I, I know, I've coached enough people and done enough therapy with folks to know one-on-one that, you know, if you love what you do, it's not work. It's a job. It's a vocation. It's a career. You know, I also tell the clients that I, that I, that I coach in, in, in business and in, in work, work environment that, you know, you don't come to work necessarily to make friends and be, you know, be a, be a social butterfly. You come to work to make a living, to make a check and go home. Now you can choose to do that in a way that is, you know, is, is, you know, follows some form of passion or some, you know, something that you feel strongly about. So you love what it is you do, but there's nothing worse than getting up in the morning. And I've done it a bunch of times. There's nothing worse than getting up in the morning and not liking where you have to go the next day or go, go, or go that day, right? The job you have. I've been fortunate most of my life. I've managed to do what I really love to do and what I feel I'm good at. And maybe my calling is for, right. But not everybody has that opportunity. And you know what? Here's the deal. The deal is you can go to work and make a living and you can work on other passionate stuff on the side. And maybe one day the passionate stuff becomes your living. Now, there's many that will say, you know what, Yona, that's not a good idea. It's never good when your hobby becomes your job. Your hobby's a hobby for a reason. I don't know. What do you think? 877-399-9898. We're going to have the lines open for the first hour here. So jump in if you want to. You want to share. Would you go to work if you didn't have to? Or are you going to work and you don't have to? I spoke to somebody the other day. We had a lovely lunch with a, with a, a, a new friend, very successful uh, lawyer who is, you know, by his own admission, extremely successful. You can tell by his practice how successful he is in terms of his popularity and so on. Very well known. And we talked about it. And he says, you know what? I've been working seven days a week for the last 27 years since I started my practice. He says, I really don't know how to do anything else. He says, but now I'm thinking maybe I want to do something else. At some point, you know, maybe we look at the balance between going to work and the other things that we do. And sometimes maybe the idea of going to work is so overwhelming and so difficult to do for many of us 
We have to tease ourselves with things we can do after work or on our days off or our weekends off. And the hope is for most of you, my prayer is for the most of you, and my hope is for, for all of you, that you're doing something that makes you feel good about yourself. That's really the key, right? The, real, the key is if you're going to work and you come home feeling crummy about who you are, that's really hard to live with. Yeah, the work might be difficult. Maybe it's monotonous. Maybe it's boring. But in today's day and age, in Canada for sure, there are so many opportunities for us to do new things and learn new things that being stuck in the job can sometimes be a choice because it's just easier, right? Maybe we get a little lazy, right? I don't call you anybody lazy out there, but maybe we get a lazy, a little lazy, a little comfortable in the job you're in. Why bother trying for something new? I don't really want to tweak my resume. It's too much. I go for an interview. Come on, not worth it. Okay. But if at the end of the day, you hate your job, you hate going to work, you got to make a change. It will absolutely chew up your mental health and make you feel not just mentally uncomfortable, physically can make you sick too. Stomach aches and headaches and tension in your neck. Yeah, you all know what I'm talking about. That being said, half the Canadians or more don't want to work if they don't have to. Okay, so what I'm suggesting is that's great. Let me tell you something. I want to talk to every one of you that's now working, who all of a sudden decides they don't want to work anymore, takes a month off. Tell me what you do for the month because you can only play so much golf, travel so many places, take so many cooking classes and restore so many cars. And eventually, you got to find something to do, something you feel good about. Maybe it's not a job. I'm not suggesting it has to be a job. But today, to try to buy groceries, maybe get a mortgage, buy a house one day, if you think you're, it's even remotely possible in your life, I think it's very important to recognize that what we do all day has a lot to do with how we feel about ourselves. And if you don't like what you're doing, Maybe find something else. But the thought of not working at all, I don't know. Work, work for me. I, I, you know, I'm at that stage. I'm thinking about retirement, but I'm, I'm a long way away. And I don't even know what that looks like. I think it still looks like working every day, but maybe just differently. I don't know. Interested to hear what you think. When we come back, uh, we'll, get, we'll get to that uh, by text or by phone later on. We're going to take a bigger break here. We'll be back shortly. And uh, we're going to talk about what we need to do to make kids' lives a little bit better and make sure that the next generation has some kind of fighting chance. So stick around. we got more stuff to do. I think no matter where you come from, whether you're a parent, whether you have kids in your neighborhood, whether you teach at a school, whether you're a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, you just, you know, have neighbor kids, whatever. I think you'll all agree with me that we are doing, as a group of adults, and I'll speak for us as Canadians, we're doing a really lousy job these days. I got to tell you, man. I hear from more kids. I hear from from more families uh, these days than I ever have in all of the decades of years I've been doing this. Um, And kids are just not doing well, man. They're struggling with mental health and addiction issues and suicide attempt rate is way up, you know, self-harm, cutting, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, young young people are putting themselves out there in, in, in risky, intimate opportunities and situations, sometimes for money, sometimes just to feel like they're valuable, right? So young people perhaps, you know, are, are learning at way too young an age that their bodies become something they can sell or trade 
or used in some way to manipulate or manage a situation in their best interest. You know, climate change, global politics, the tumultuous world that kids see when they read the paper, listen to radio, turn on our TV, right? We're not doing a good job. We're just not doing a good job. We're not doing a good job in the school system. We're not doing a very good job, my friends at home. You know, I don't know what ever happened to things like, you know, people going to places of worship for youth programs and stuff. Back in the day, that was a way that we helped a lot of kids, right? These youth programs and churches and synagogues and mosques and other forms, other, you know, forms of uh, houses of worship. So the problem that we're having is we're not able to properly model the behavior for these kids that we need to. So all the money in the world, all the programs in the world don't really help if we as adults just don't do a better job of figuring out what we need to do to raise kids. And I don't mean just your own kids. I mean all kids. The way you talk to them, the way you treat them, right? The way that you're able to, you know, give a kid a leg up. You know, back when I was a kid and you were, you know, giving, selling, you know, uh, lemonade at the le creating a lemonade stand or, or, or hustling apples and, 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 and cookies and stuff for scouts and guides and whatever else you might be attached to. You know, adults treated kids with a different level of respect. They, they, they get, you know, I certainly did. I'd always give a kid a few extra dollars just to say, hey, man, good hustle. Like, you know, good on you. And right. But we're not doing that anymore. We're not doing a very good job of giving kids a pat on the back going, hey, at a boy or at a girl or at a person. You're doing a great job. You're doing well. You know, you're really good, kind-hearted. You're warm. You're sensitive. You know, it's always about sports. It's about school. It's about marks. It's always about the kind of friends they have that you don't like. It's never about the kind of friends they have that you do like. You all know what I'm talking about. I'm sure you do, 100%. I'm surprised my phone isn't lit up right now and I don't have text messages coming off the screen. 877-399-9898. Cause you know, either that or call me up and say, Yona, you're full of garbage, man. You're full of crap. It's not really what's happening. We're, you know, kids are better today. I'd love to hear that conversation. Maybe I'm missing something, but I'm pretty connected. It's hard to really miss it when you're talking to moms and dads and kids and, and, and lawyers and judges all day, every day, and hearing stories about, you know, one kid or another who just, quote unquote, slipped through the cracks. Well, they don't slip through the cracks. They slip through our hands, our fingers, our, our chance to, to change and alter the way they live. You know, I remember before I had children and the impact that it had, right? Like, you know, I looked at life entirely differently before my first son was born. But the second he came out, even through pregnancy and stuff, I really didn't get it. I really didn't have my, you know, like, you know. But as soon as that kid popped out, as soon as I could see his eyes and all the rest of the parts, including, you know, the boy parts, because that particular night there were 17 girls ahead of my son. And uh, I don't know. I was kind of hoping to have a boy. I did. I had three of them. But I remember the difference in how I saw life, the, the change I had in, in, my, in my, um, my motivation that following morning, you know, getting up and, and, and going to work and, and just approaching life differently. Like all of a sudden now I had this new responsibility, this new, I don't know, this, this new 
situation that I just had to be around and be a part of because that's what I chose to do. And my wife and I tried so hard to have children. And I remember the second and the third. And each time just reconnected me to what my purpose was. And I'll tell you, I haven't always been a great model for my children. But I'll tell you, when I don't model good behavior, I catch myself realizing not because of the impact it's going to have on me or sometimes even my wife, which is, you know, the person in my life I want to absolutely make sure is is treated with respect. But sometimes I make mistakes. Of course, I apologize. But I recognize I'm not modeling behavior for my boys. These are not the kind of, you know, kinds of things a, a, a man does with his wife or says to his wife. I mean, I, listen, I'm not talking about horrible stuff, but, you know, we can all do a little better, right? A little more appreciative, that kind of stuff. A little more appreciative, a little more understanding. Kids have it real tough today, my friends. Real tough. Tougher than we did when we were kids. And as tough as that was. I remember my life growing up. It wasn't so easy. My mom had her hands full. She had three boys. My father worked like a dog. He was never around. But not because he didn't want to be home and because he was running around gambling and, and, and you know, doing horrible stuff. He was out, you know, out, you know, drinking and having a time with his boys. No, he was working. He was hustling. He was traveling. He was doing what he had to do to make sure we had a roof over our head and, and even more so that we wouldn't go hungry and my mother wouldn't have any stress. But I'll tell you, it was tough on her. And I'm sure if you were, you know, she's passed now, but there were many times we had conversations, her and I, about what it was like to raise, you know, four boys all those years. She wouldn't have changed it for the world, she told me. Best thing she ever did. And she gave herself and her life to her children all the time. They always came first. Doesn't mean we didn't argue. Doesn't mean we didn't have times where, you know, I'd do something to upset her. I mean, I I can't count on hands and feet. How many times, and certainly as a kid, I did things that would piss my mother off. But at the end of the day, she was solid. So I think as a community, as a society, we need to be more like those kinds of parents. More like the type of parents that recognize the responsibility to raise a child or to raise children or raise a community of children. It's just not an obligation and a a function of, of, of work. What a beautiful opportunity to carve and create and mold Talk about painting a picture or creating a legacy of some sort. Nothing better than a young generation of people who know how to say yes, sir, and no, sir. Please and thank you. Open the doors for folks that are older than them. When's the last time you saw that? You don't see it much anymore, right? We've missed that generation. Hopefully my boys do it. Not because they're special. It's because that's what I do. Because that's what my dad did. And that's what my dad's dad did. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of things my dad did that I don't do because I don't think they're good for me or for my kids. There's a lot of things that my dad's dad did that he didn't do for the same reasons. So we need to refine refine the process as a society, as a school system, as a generation of adults. Because if we want these children, these young people, to have a fighting chance, They need to see us doing better. They need to see us not freaking out and losing our stuff because of this, that, or something else. And panicking over things that, you know, may not be within our grasp and complain because the world is so unjust. 
just need to do a better job. Look at yourself in the mirror. Think about what you're doing and the impact that would have if a whole bunch of kids saw you do it. It's a pretty good measure. We're going to get there. I know you are. We all are. We're going to get there together because the shows like this and people like me and other people like me that are out there and advocating for young people that do a, a much better job, frankly, than I do in, in terms of doing that on a day-by-day-by-day basis. And the kids themselves are starting to talk back and saying something. Now, that's a big deal. I want to talk now about cannabis. I know we talk about it a lot, but I think it's a conversation that we need to continue to have because, you know, um, there's a lot of discussion around, certainly in my world, the, the difference between recreational marijuana and and uh, medical marijuana, who, you know, who's providing what to which and, and or which one to whom and, and so on. You know, who, like, what's, what's, Where's the difference now between recreational weed and, and medical uh, cannabis? There's, so, you know, you walk into the same store and you're hopeful that the person who's selling your stuff across the counter from you has some idea what your medical needs are, right? But likely, likely they're not an expert. So, for example, who would be an expert? An expert would be someone like a pharmacist or a doctor, or someone who specializes in in you know holistic solutions for you know mental health and 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 uh, physical pain and so on. Well, interesting, because in the state of Georgia, they've approved the distribution of low dose THC, which is typically the medical grade, because people aren't using it to get high. So it's usually a very high uh, for for medical purposes. It's usually a very high percentage of CBD, which is the part the non-psychoactive part of the product, of the plant. It's the part that's, quote-unquote, the medical part of the plant. Um, so low-dose THC, 5 6%, mixed with, you know, 30%, 40 50% of, of CBD, right, potentially. So that's not enough to sort of get you high. And in the recreational stores, you know, you're looking at, 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 at medical, at, at uh, cannabis products that start at 14%, 15 16%. I mean, some are, some are lower. They do have a, a small amount of, uh, of uh, low-dose THC products. But the idea in Georgia is to provide the low-dose products through a pharmacy, through their local pharmacies, who will be trained around the medical benefits and the medical use of marijuana. Uh, other states have, you know, that are, have laws that would allow it, they're just not doing it. So that's what's happening right now. That Georgia is the first one out. And what they're looking for is to separate, really. I mean, that's one of the discussions, and I, and I totally agree. Separate the, the recreational market from the medical market. I think that's a, a big uh, 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 something that we need to seriously look at. But in the U.S., it's federally illegal for a pharmacist to dispense cannabis. It's also federally illegal to do anything with cannabis, but people do it on states by state by state. You're, you're able to do it. <clears throat> but as a national thing, they don't like it. When you cross the border from Canada into the U.S., you know, it's a national, you know, it's a it's a state, it's a, it's a whole national program crossing the border. They don't care that the state you're going to allows it. They just don't want you using weed at all in the United States. That's the federal position. So, there are a lot of things that you can learn from the use of marijuana in a medical setting 
certainly very good for trauma, very good for sleep issues, very good for uh, any forms, certain forms of eating disorders. Not Again, not for everybody. Not everybody can use it. It doesn't work well for everybody. You have to be able to, to um, you know, to tolerate it. Not everybody can, right? So the idea is that, you know, if we really want to treat cannabis as a split here from people who just use it to get high for, you know, a weekend or an evening, whatever, versus those that need it for medical benefits, much easier for them if they're able to get it from a pharmacist who can answer questions. And for patients who don't have access to the proper THC, because they're getting it in, in from other states because their state doesn't allow it, or they're getting it from places that are that are unsafe. We'll get to that in a minute, right? Talk about some unsafe weed here in a second. But getting it from a licensed pharmacist in an organized fashion with a prescription, number one, I would hope that would be covered by your by your insurance policy, by some form of of uh, same as you know whatever third party policy you may have, any kind of Medicare or something you may have in the U.S. Uh, here in Canada. Um, OHIP doesn't cover uh, your your meds until you get to a certain age, uh, but they're, they're you know if you can cover it with your insurance company at least your your insurance provider from work, it would make a big difference. And later on in the show, we're going to talk about soldiers and 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 vets and the types of meds and and treatments that we're talking about. But right now in the U in Canada, the government pays for soldiers that come back from the war and have PTSD. They'll pay for their weed forever. So we, we already know that there's a medical benefit, at least for people with post-traumatic stress, but do we, right? And, and, and now having the potential to have a licensed pharmacist look at who you are and what drugs you're taking, what thing, you know, doctors you're seeing and complications you may have had because they have access to your records, right? Might not be a terrible idea. I'd love to hear what you think. You can send me a text, 877-399-9898. And uh, I'd appreciate uh, hearing from you if you want to give us a call. That's great, too. Uh, what, what do you think? Do you think that's a good idea for, for um, pharmacists to carry the medical side of the marijuana products coming out of the growers? Well, let me tell you, there are contaminants in cannabis and hemp that we're now learning about years later. Even the medical purpose ones, um, I'm talking about the ones you now get from government stores. Uh, hemp and cannabis are new crops. They're just early stages of understanding the relationship with their different types of pathogens. But it, we understand that there's some issues around um, mycotoxins in hemp and cannabis products. They're just now learning. Um, and that there's gaps in the contamination levels in some hemp and cannabis products. And we're not sure what impact it actually has, but there is a fungus of some sort, a fungi of some sort, um, aspergillus, uh, penicillium, uh, fusarium, and mucor are other types of fungi that are found and amongst these plants, these myco, mycotoxins, M-Y-C-O-T-O-X-I-N-S, mycotoxins. So we're, you know, not just a function of whether marijuana works for you. Now we're starting to learn little bits at a time here because they found that some cancer patients that were using large amounts of cannabis um, had issues in their lungs and such that um, made them, uh, the, the the study, then the people that, you know, produced the study start to understand the impact it has with people with low immune 
um, scenarios, low, you know, compromised uh, folks that have, you know, HIV, for example, transplant the patients, those taking chemotherapy and so on. And by the way, those are the folks that are most likely to be using marijuana uh, for things like nausea and uh, discomfort and, you know, general malaise as it relates to aches and pains in your body and bones and so on. So I don't know, man, there, there's so much more to learn. Um, I like the idea. I think it's a great idea if we could, if you could go to a pharmacist and say, I would like to try cannabis for my, for my anxiety. And, um, you know, what do you recommend? Or my doctor suggests I get uh, cannabis with this amount of THC and this amount of CBD, which, you know, which types do you have? You know, should I be using an edible? Should I be smoking it? Should I, whatever, right? All various ways to come at it. Um, but I think properly led by someone who actually knows what they're talking about, it's probably not a terrible idea. And, and with respect, doctors just don't know, right? Doctors just don't understand. They just don't, uh, they just don't get it. Not because they don't want to. It's just you know, they haven't had the chance to learn. I mean, there are experts out there. There are small teams of people that work with some of the growers that get out and talk to doctors. But you know, doctors are likely if they're if they understand if they understand a little bit about cannabis and how it works, they're likely to give you a prescription um, for whatever reason you might need one because you can go into a regular store, regular uh, cannabis store, and buy it all. You know, sort of without a prescription, not sort of, but without a prescription. But I think there's something definitely around. Uh, medical grade, medical controlled cannabis products that I think is very important that we recognize that it's not the same and it's not even the same weed. There's different, it's different quality, different, different types of blends, things like Charlotte's, Charlotte's web, which was the first strain that came out to become a medical strain. If you remember the stories of helping uh, some uh, young girl uh, with many, many, many se uh, severe uh, issues in terms of uh, um, she was having all these convulsions, sometimes a hundred a day and Charlotte's web was able to help her, but can't even buy that anymore. Anyway, we'll continue to talk about it. We'll see what the change, how the changes come. We'll stay on top of it and share it with you and you can share with me and see where this all goes. Ten board games that we've looked at here to kind of get through the the ugly months, and they're interesting games. Games I, I don't I've never played. I, you know, there's one here that's called "There's Been a Murder," and it's like a for someone who likes a good riddle, right? It's set in the 1930s in England. It's a murder that takes place. It's called "There's Been a Murder." It's a collaborative uh, game that you can play together. It's a little bit of an education as well. It's good for three to eight players, 14 years of age and up. So more for the adult kids in your house. Uh, another one here for little younger kids and for you as a family for pizza night, perhaps, right? It's called taco cat, goat cheese, pizza, taco cat, goat cheese, pizza, make it, make it a pizza or taco party game night with this hilarious card game that may have your hands a bit sore by the end of it. It's a hand slapping game, apparently. And each player places one of their cards face up and says either taco, cat, goat, cheese, or pizza in order in their turn as their order comes around. The card matches the word. It's a race uh, to see who slaps the deck and the last player slapping uh, loses the round. I don't know. It sounds like fun. Uh, four to two, uh, two to eight players, ages eight and up for some of the younger ones. Some family-oriented game, a little competition. Do you really know your family? I like this one. This is a very cool game. How much do you really know about your family? Their favorite foods, their first job, their least favorite vegetable, 
what they complain about the most. What's you know, so it's a lighthearted trivia game. It's a lot of fun, from what I understand. Um, and it, it not only tests how well your family, you know, your family members, but how you know each other, but also how, as a team, learn a few things about each other too, right? So although it's meant for to be played with uh, players up to eight players, uh, reviewers say it can be accommodated for more than uh, eight players for a larger occasion. So you can have four people from one family be one be one uh, player, so to speak, right? So uh, interesting. Three to eight players, you can go up from that. Ages eight and up, another one that's good for everyone in the family, for those that um, have families in that age range. Here's another one. It's called Betrayal at the House on the Hill. And uh, it's a two th- it won a 2004 or- Origins Award. It's been produced, new editions. Uh, it's a top-rated board game. Uh, includes 50 terrifying scenarios and many creepy, dangerous rooms. Ah, sounds cool. Quickly discover how creepy the game is, and it's thrilling. Three to six players, 12 and up. Here's one, Monkers. That's an interesting one if you like to deal with pop culture kind of stuff, right? It, uh, absolute silliness this game is. It's a card game. It's as weird as it's entertaining. Uh, your team's going to be tasked with guessing as many names and words possible in under a minute. Each round of three having different rules. Cards include celebrity names, pop culture references like Pac-Man, Tinder the Kraken, and so on, uh, as well as just random words like, you know, shark from Jaws, for example, or Donald Trump's hair. Anyway, interesting. It's interesting. It looks like a lot of fun. Um, And 4 to 16 players, 4 to 16, 17 and up. So these are for your more educated adult kids. Perhaps. Uh, here's an interesting one. Where should we begin? It's uh, created by the New York Times author and renowned relationship psychotherapist Esther Perel. Um, the focus on where we should begin is a game about storytelling and building connections. So it's kind of a mental health ish kind of game. Uh, includes different rules uh, to suit whoever's playing, right? Might be lovers, friends, colleagues, could be a party. Uh, so, example of the cards in, in included are prompts like share something nobody knows. So it's kind of a game of maybe secrets, right? Where we share some secret stuff that nobody knows. It's an interesting format. It's uh, two to six players, 18 and up. Uh, here's another one, Drawing Without Dignity. The game's for people who have an open mind. Um, and it's for four to 12 players, 18 and up. Um, another one called Quick Thinker. Uh, if you're a quick thinker, it's called Anomia. Uh, A-N-O-M-I-A is a fun and easy game. Um it's, it's set up. It's the, it's kind of where uh, the real challenge is to come up with the answer faster than your opponent. So where it could be a dog breed, a baseball team, some form of instrument, radio station, something. Uh, it's for three to six players. It's family fun. It's um, uh, play at any night of the week, they say. Ages 10 and up. And uh, let me see where we are here. We're, uh, we're looking at this one. This is um, one for geography buffs. Uh, it's called Ticket to Ride. It's a list of, it's uh, one of the top listed games. Um, And Ticket to Ride, it's uh, won tons of awards since uh, 2004. Um, Millions of people have played this game. It's 20 different languages. It's a game and geography lesson in one. Uh, There are countries and other regions on Ticket to Ride game to choose from. Europe, Asia, New York, Nordic countries, to name a few. It's good for two to six players, ages eight and up. So there's some ideas of some board games, plus all the other good ones, right? There's tons of card games you can still play with your kids. You know, my wife and I play with our grandchildren. We play Old Maid all the time. It's uh, Kids have a lot of fun. Uh, we have a lot of fun. Other forms of <coughs> simple card games, 
you know, games like other board games like Monopoly and Scrabble, they're also awesome games to play if you're, you know, you're looking to stay inside and get nice and cozy. It goes real well with, you know, tomato soup and uh, grilled cheese sandwich. I can see Leo's licking his lips. That's my favorite. You know, that's my comfort food. You got comfort food? So it's a particular kind of comfort food you like? Let me know, 877-399-9898. What's the comfort food that works for you? Again, I said for me, it's tomato, you know, homemade tomato soup and grilled cheese sandwich, crispy grilled cheese sandwich. Oh, my gosh. My mother, may she rest in peace, used to make the best grilled cheese sandwiches ever. And, um, yeah, so time to kind of get around. And the idea is to hang out with family, get off your screens, get away from the computer, get away from the things that disconnect you, Right. Things like these games that we're talking about, I mean, it's fun to talk about them, and it's nice and light and give me some ideas of some really cool games that we did some research on. Uh, but at the end of the day, it connects you and your family together, and that's really the piece that we wanted to bring out. Anything you can do to connect with family, especially if you have kids, in a way that's interesting, kind of, you know, maybe these. And something I like about these games is it kind of neutralizes the ground for everybody so that everybody gets to play. So, you know, parents can play, kids can play at different ages, so you can feel pretty good about yourself, right? These games help you feel, you know, pretty good about yourself if you're able to participate. And, you know, if you can win, it's even better, but it's the playing that matters. And frankly, it's not even the game. It's just that you get to hang out and do cool stuff together. And from that comes conversations and discussions and laughter and giggles and maybe an argument or two, whatever. It does definitely does help. Uh, improve the family dynamic and gets you all communicating again like we should, right? Getting away from all these text messages and emails that you send to one another. People texting each other in the same room. Come on, it's a little bit nuts, don't you think? In recent years, we have been hearing more about the use of psychedelics to treat people with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. The emerging evidence around this type of therapy is encouraging. Psychedelics, particularly MDMA and psilocybin, can offer an alternative for those who are facing the darkest moments of their lives and those who have tried everything else. That's Senator David Richards, and I can tell you, if it didn't sound like a speech to you, it probably should have, because that's what it sounded like. Really not somebody who's ever lived in the world of post-traumatic stress or treating people with post-traumatic stress. Uh, but interesting what's uh, coming out here. Canada's uh, said they're going to study psychedelics uh, for the treatment of veteran PTSD. Now, right now, <clears throat> one of the uh, pre prescriptions and has been since medical marijuana was made legal in Canada, uh, cannabis is used widely. Uh, to treat uh, PTSD amongst uh, veterans and uh, amongst other things. And um, the government pays for that. Uh, and it's, you know, whether it's, it makes a difference, doesn't make a difference. I think for a lot of, a lot of soldiers, it's, it's really a helpful tool in, in their fight to regain their solid um, or, or wellness, their, their solid mental health and some level of wellness for sure. Um, but despite the evidence, Canada's waited for a long time uh, to opt into this kind of stuff. And, you know, there's uh, other things. There's ibogaine, there's there's uh, there's magic mushrooms, MDMA, there's talks about um, LSD, um, there's, you know, all, you know, 
what's uh, ayahuasca, excuse me, ayahuasca. There's all, all these things that have been used over the years. I've heard them all. I've had patients try pretty much all of them in various parts of the world and come back to you, come back to me and without a great, uh, a great degree of success. Um, I have an expert with me tonight. His name is Professor Mark Hayden. He's an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia School of Population and Public Health. Professor Hayden, thanks for being here tonight. It's a pleasure, Yona. Thanks for having me on the show. So, you know, we're going to get into this together. I know that you that you study this stuff, uh, but I can give you a perspective of uh, from a from a guy who does treatment and therapy. Uh, I just haven't seen the results of real good stuff with long term uh, sobriety, long term, you know, established mental health, uh, no use of opiates coming off of all the promises that people hear uh, for these things that are offered. What's coming out of this thing, Professor, that these studies are more encouraging than perhaps I see on the street? Well, it's interesting. The The Senate committee report recently observed that veterans specifically were highly problematic in terms of their response to PTSD. Suicide rates are really high and the treatment for PTSD is absolutely terrible. It's um, either antidepressants or this thing called prolonged exposure or flooding. Yep. And so I read the report with great interest and I agreed with their assessment of the problem but I completely disagreed with their recommendations. So their assessment of the problem is many of our veterans have this huge problem and it's really very difficult to treat, which is true. Um, the medications that are available are antidepressants and they don't work very well. And uh, prolonged exposure doesn't work very well either. So, but the recommendations were actually quite strange, I thought, because they recommended more research. We don't need more research. There's been a ton of research that's been done. The organization called MAPS in the States, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, has been put has been looking at PTSD treatment for about 30 years, and they finished their phase three studies. So the prediction is that MDMA for PTSD will be available through a doctor's prescription pad next year, 2024. And it's also been a multi-country study with many sites. So we've had that. We've, Health Canada has been observing oversight of that same research. So the recommendation that they had, which is more research is needed, I personally believe is completely wrong. We know from the research that it's effective. What we actually need is to really open the door widely and to make this, this available as quickly as we possibly can. So, um, okay, I get that you're sold, right? Um, the, the question becomes... Um, they go to their doctor, they get a prescription, then what? So does the doctor have the skill set to no, guide no, them as so they no, say, you know, when you're absolutely going to a, not. a trip? They, they they right. So now they're gonna get their meds. Where are they gonna go, uh, professor, to get a, a properly for for lack of a I think the proper term is for a properly guided therapeutic experience? Because none of the patients that I know have come back from situations where that was provided as part of the quote unquote trip. So your question is an absolute bullseye. So the reason why is the recommendation they should have made is not more research is needed, but the recommendation should have been, we need to really, really scale up the training for therapists yeah. to use psychedelics. Yeah. Because what we know is if it's offered by itself through a prescription pad and you used it just as a medicine, it wouldn't be helpful. It's the context of this medicine that means makes it helpful. And MDMA is only available through the research process through a very carefully constructed type of therapy that actually takes a long time and is quite difficult to learn. Physicians don't have the skills. In fact, normal therapists don't have the skills. 
The normal therapists have to do a lot of unlearning to learn how to do it. And physicians have to have a lot of learning to learn how to do it. It's a complicated skill. And so really the recommendation should mean we need to massively scale up the training for therapists to use MDMA. So when the door opens in about a year from now, it should be, we should have all of the skilled people who could provide the therapy. Sounds to me like there's going to be a bunch of these clinics um, available across the country that are going to be not, in, in my mind, not really one, not really run in the in the way that you know me as a therapist would would want to come at this. I mean, they're looking at stuff like uh, psilocybin, which is magic mushrooms, MDMA that you're talking about, ecstasy, basically, ketamine, and and you know, um, ibogaine and and ayahuasca. Like, <clears throat> at, at what point, you know, um, LSD? At, at what point do we pick the proper psychedelic or do we just throw everything at it and hope one of these is going to connect um why are we looking at all psychedelics versus your you know you've only talked specifically about mdma is there something specific about mdma that triggers a response in the brain that helps people get past the trauma of post-traumatic stress so yes most of the psychedelics you mentioned are in the clinical trial pathway and right. so many of them are being looked at, but they're being looked at for a whole variety of different conditions. Psilocybin specifically, the front runner research is for end of life anxiety and depression. Ibogaine, the research is for opiate addiction and opiate withdrawals. So you can't lump them all together the way you did. You sort of blurred all the psychedelics into one package. They're not. Different <laughs> psychedelics are being used for different indications. And MDMA is specifically helpful for PTSD, partly because the traditional treatments for PTSD evoke a huge fear response. And right. MDMA specifically ameliorates that fear response and really calms people down to go into their unconscious mind and to look at the trauma tape loop and find a way of resolving it when used in the context of skilled therapy. Okay. So I, you know, you, you mentioned I, I grouped them all together as one. I didn't group them together as one specifically to, you know, just to say they're all the same thing. <clears throat> what I see now is a half a dozen potential uh, therapeutic, therapeutic modalities that are, you know, that are uh, holistic, if you will, or, or, organic um you know just to study the the use of ketamine in in certain types of mental health disorders by itself is a whole big job you know are we expecting that doctors and and, and practitioners are going to get it are going to understand that you know this particular person you know presents like this so psilocybin is good for them this person presents like this mdma is going to be good for them ketamine for this one ibogaine for this one the the the, the process which you started off by saying we need to educate uh, more providers and and the healthcare uh, system in a way that you know be, be, provides meaningful therapy. That's a big job here, brother. Well, that's exactly why the recommendation from our research, I think, is misguided. What we need to I do agree. is to train therapists, to educate physicians, to bring them on board with this thing that is about to happen. I mean, certainly in the states, MDMA will be legal and available through the prescription yep. pad next year. Health Canada may decide to do exactly the same. So we need to brace for this, build our ability, our build Canadian capacity to actually manage this skillfully. We're talking about the use of uh, psychedelic drugs to treat post-traumatic stress and other mental health disorders amongst our veterans, our soldiers. Um, so when psych, I'll read you something. So when psychedelics are on board, it's a bit like you get to hang on the edge of the mountain for a while and just look around the view and appreciate it. You actually have choices as to how you get down that mountain. 
That's according to Mark Hayden. He's a UBC researcher and my guest this evening. Professor Hayden, thanks again for being here. Um, it's we're talking about uh, we're talking about the use of uh, psychedelics in in uh, directed and um, guided therapy. Um, what's the likelihood that uh, with men, like like with many prescriptions, um, people are going to be prescribed these psychedelic um, uh, medications, if you will, I think it's a proper term, psychedelic medications, um, without so much oversight and perhaps lead to use and abuse in a uh, non-healthy, more uh, more uh, obsessive kind of way. What's Is there a study around that or does the study look at that, what the, the likelihood of, of any form of dependency or abuse of these particular drugs uh, might be? So the way that I predict it'll be rolled out, the legalization of MDMA will be rolled out. It'll be based on the MAPS protocol. MAPS is the organization that spent millions to bring it to a doctor's prescription pad. And before the generics can, can compete with them, they will be the ones selling it. And what the current statement is, they will only sell MDMA if it's prescribed. And the person who is going to be doing the therapy is trained by MAPS, which is a very, very detailed... Um, thorough training process. So the idea that any physician could prescribe it, I mean, any physician could prescribe it, but they can't purchase it. It's only going to be available through the MAPS protocol. So they've done a huge amount of work to safeguard it because you're absolutely right. It could go, the, the train could go off the rails very quickly if physicians who know nothing about it just prescribe it and it's just given to a patient. That isn't the model. It's psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and really understanding the details of the therapy is really, really important. So, um, it, like the so, there's many people in this country, tens of thousands of them, uh, that are provided um, medically assisted drugs for the benefit of uh, staying away from the use of opioids. So, meth methadone, suboxone, for example, uh, paid for through various government programs, especially for those that are on disability. Uh, is it the intention of the Canadian government? to cover all of the costs of the therapy and the medication? And if so, uh, is there is there some kind of, I know I don't like to talk about cost mo models when you're talking about saving lives, but is it a cost-effective delivery program? Well, that's one of the challenges. The, the, the MAPS model requires trained credentials people to yeah. provide the service and it's lengthy. It's a, you have to prepare people for the experience. You have to guide them through the experience and you have to integrate the experiences afterwards for it to be effective. So yeah, there are some gonna be some financial challenges. So it would be wonderful if the federal government stepped up. That should have been one of the recommendations in the Senate report is that this should be available through either Veterans Affairs or generally through the government. It should be supported by MSP. Those kind of recommendations would actually be incredibly helpful. They recommended more research is required. No, more research isn't required. The research is done. What we need to do is try and figure out how to roll this out so it's available and accessible to both veterans and the general public. And we need to have people that are trained and skillful at providing the context to maximize the healing potential for these amazing medicines. I, you know, I'm just, I, I know my friends at Veterans Affairs, they're, they're, they're literally pulling their hair out these days, those that have any left, and trying to figure out solutions. They're just, you know, just so many, uh, so many uh, soldiers coming back. The percentage is so high uh, of folks that are coming back that have traumatic stress either immediately or years later. Um, the, the, the opportunity to do trials. Um, I know they're, they're looking at research. Now, you mentioned that there are some MDMA trials ongoing, or did I misunderstand? 
Well, in order for a drug to be available through a doctor's prescription pad, it has to have passed the phase three clinical trial process. That has happened in the States and in Canada. So now there's the process of bringing that to the federal governments, both FDA and Health Canada, and saying, here's the research now you need to do to approve it. You need to do post-market to post-research market authorization is the step. And so that needs to happen. But it's also curious because previously you mentioned ketamine. I run a ketamine program and we've recently added a wing to the ketamine program that's called Helping Heroes that's specifically aimed at police officers and veterans and other first responders. So we we see the need very, very clearly and we've kind of stepping up to the plate and trying to make that happen. And so that's what needs to happen. It needs to be existing programs that are skillful or other programs be brought on board and and made skillful. But uh, the idea that more research is needed is actually quite strange. Yeah, well, are you surprised (laughs) that the government comes up with a strange strange, uh, recommendation or or their their takeaway is something less than, you know, uh, real life, real time, you know, on the street kind of stuff? You you talk about running. It's it's interesting because. Well, the Go name ahead. of their report that they were posted, the, the Senate committee report, the name of the yeah. report is the time is now. Yeah, the recommendation exactly. that they made is the time is 10 years from now. So yeah, now you see me. Now you see me. Now you don't. It's bizarre, actually. Yeah, it's 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 it's, uh, it's the sleight of hand. Um, yes. the, the, ketamine, the ketamine that you've got. um the clinic that you're running, I'm just hearing myself here in the background, unfortunately, um, the ketamine that uh, the clinic that you run specifically, what, what, what are you treating with ketamine? Well, the program that we run, most people show up with depression and sometimes very severe depression. The college of physicians and surgeons talks about mental health conditions and chronic pain. That's the open door that allowed the clinic that I run to exist. But it was historically used as, a, as an anesthetic, a disassociative anesthetic. And then it was observed by surgeons that it was very helpful for depression. And then they only allowed it to be available for severe depression in the context of hospitals. And then someone wisely observed that it's, it doesn't need to be in the context of hospitals. It can actually be managed completely adequately in the community, which is why the program exists. The primary treatment is depression. But anxiety, PTSD, um, all of these kind of general problems that many people show up to therapist's office for can be helped with a well-run, skillfully managed ketamine program. So then why why add the the MDMA? Well, to be honest, MDMA is better for PTSD. The bullseye treatment for ketamine is depression. But right now... The availability of, 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 of MDMA for PTSD is somewhat limited by this thing called the special access program, which is a door that is only marginally open. And so it's really easy because ketamine is, is a, an easy to prescribe psychedelic that when managed skillfully can be helpful for PTSD, but MDMA would be ideal. So really what they need to do is make open the MDMA door much more widely. Now, is there a chance that ketamine and MDMA may be used in the same patient's treatment plan? That's possible. There's no research on that. And and I think it would be un, unlikely, but it, it certainly could be possible. I mean, ketamine is a, is a relatively easy psychedelic to work with. It's very short acting and it it is immediately anti-anxiety. And so I can understand that some it, there, there is a logic for what you're saying, but that isn't that is hasn't been researched. And I don't know if that would happen. Gotcha. 
Um, what made you decide that this is an area of study that made sense for you? Well, I used to run an addictions treatment program in Vancouver oh, Coastal Health. Okay. And I, I ran it for decades. And I, I observed that we didn't, nobody ever walked in our clinic, had a transformative experience and walked out and said, I'm healed. It just never happened. Right. And then as the interest in psychedelic medicines was growing, I had clients that would come to our treatment, I'd come to our treatment and then go off and have a psychedelic experience and then come back to us and report remarkable outcomes. And uh, so I tried to persuade Vancouver Coastal Health to take it seriously. And at that point in history, they wouldn't. So I left and I started this organization called MAPS Canada, which is the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. And I was part of the process of bringing the MDMA for PTSD studies to Canada. Well, Mark, uh, Professor Mark Hayden, you're a very interesting guy, an excellent guest. I'd love to, uh, I'd love to continue to uh, connect with you every once in a while, see how things are coming along, and uh, you feel free to use my platform anytime uh, to share if that's something that's helpful. But uh, good on you, brother. Somebody's certainly at their best. I really appreciate the work you're doing, and power to you. And I appreciate your interest in this important topic. Thank you, Jonah.